Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Monday the 21st of September. I'm Tom Tilly, and today we're going to brief you on the children of ISIS fighters. Is it time to bring them home? It's truly one of the worst places in the world to be a child, and at the moment there's 40 Aussie kids languishing in this environment. Yeah, you'll find out where they are in just a moment. First, here are the big stories of the day with Annika Smethurst. Let's start with some good news. And Victoria is inching closer to single digits with just 14 new cases yesterday. Uh, Ultimately, these numbers are a cause for great optimism and a positivity, I would hope, right across metropolitan Melbourne. That was Premier Dan Andrews, and it's the state's best numbers in over three months, um, which means the state is on track to ease restrictions in a week's time. It'll also be good news for these anti-lockdown protesters, Annika, who made a very strong choice to sing this song at their protest at Melbourne's Chadston Shopping Centre yesterday. It's terrible, but it's still recognisable. Look, the small group was broken up by police and there were two arrests and six fines. And John Farnham's manager, Glenn Wheatley, has made a public statement saying uh, that he's personally concerned people will hear the song and think John Farnham is personally endorsing these protests. And in this case, it's not right. It's something John and I do not condone. And are we doing enough to reduce our carbon emissions? That's a question you'll hear a lot this week, with the federal government releasing its long-awaited technology roadmap for the energy sector. Yeah, we're not exactly sure what will be in it. So far, we know there'll be a focus on gas and that it won't include a hard target of zero net emissions by 2050. Uh, Here's the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, speaking on the ABC yesterday. Why won't you commit to that target? Because I'm more interested in the doing, David. I I know people get very focused on on the politics of these commitments, but what I'm focused on is on the technology that delivers lower emissions, lower costs and more jobs. Now, Federal Labor, along with all the states and territories, are keen on a target of net zero emissions by 2050. Federal Opposition Leader Anthony Albanese says we may not get there without a target. The government says that they're going to have a roadmap, but to a destination that they don't have. Well, a roadmap without a destination is a road to nowhere. Anthony Albanese there. Annika, why are we hearing so many announcements about energy and climate policy at the moment? Look, tomorrow the government are going to stand up and actually release an energy policy. And as anyone that's been following politics in Australia for a little while now will know it's been a hugely contentious issue and in many ways has been responsible for claiming the scalps of many of our prime ministers over the last sort of 10 or so years. So, It's something we really need to move on. We don't really have an energy policy. The government see that coming out of this COVID recession is actually a good time to, I guess, uh, bring out a roadmap that tries to appease everybody. But as you know, Tom, that's a really difficult issue in this country. What's the balance that Scott Morrison's trying to strike here? Look, obviously there are more conservative parts of his party in the coalition party room. There's a handful of them that are still uh, keen on... I guess coal, uh, there's talk of cleaner coal, but definitely a coal presence in Australia. He's trying to balance that with, I guess, the more moderate wing of his party. And now many people in middle Australia who are calling for greater action on climate change. It's an issue that's also difficult for Labor. Uh, They had quite strong targets for 2030 at the last election. It looks like they will edge away from that and slip to a more, I guess, um, a long-term approach for 2050. 
And over to the US now, where prominent Supreme Court judge and leading feminist Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. That means a spot on the nine-person Supreme Court has opened up and the president wants to pick her replacement much faster than usual. Yeah, the reason this matters is that the Supreme Court in the US is arguably America's most powerful institution and could overturn things like gay marriage or abortion. So appointing the right judge can be really popular with voters. Back in 2016, the US refused to let then-President Obama nominate a new Supreme Court judge when another died just months before the election, saying we should wait. However, that same Senate is now endorsed President Trump's bid to get one up before November. And some other breaking news from America overnight. We have some very big news on TikTok. Yep, big news on TikTok. On the weekend, the president announced that it and Chinese-owned app WeChat would be banned on Sunday night. Now, that's just a few hours away over there. Yeah, and the president has said there's been a deal done uh, with Oracle and Walmart. Security will be 100%. They'll be using separate clouds and a lot of very, very powerful security. Uh, It will have nothing to do with China. I have given the deal my blessing. If they get it done, that's great. If they don't, that's okay too. TikTok's got another seven days to finalise the deal, but WeChat is still set to be banned. And what President Trump is talking about there is that uh, he basically said an American company has to buy TikTok, otherwise they'll ban it. Um, So Walmart and Oracle have gotten involved. Um, It was thought that Microsoft might buy it. So there's been some interesting wheeling and dealing going on uh, behind the scenes there in America. It'll be very interesting to see how that deal is finalised and also how it impacts the way we look at TikTok here in Australia. Um, They're fronting a Senate committee later this week. All right, Annika, we'll catch you later. Jan Fran is jumping into the studio as we look at the children of ISIS fighters. Think back to being a child. As a child, should you have to pay the price for mistakes that your parents made? or crimes that they committed before you were born. The son of an Australian terrorist with the severed head of a Syrian soldier in his hands. This guy named Khalid uh, Sharouf. Photo of her grandson holding the severed head of a Syrian official. I saw this picture of this little boy holding a head. Remember those horrifying images from 2014? Those Australian men who went to fight with ISIS, sometimes posing in photos with severed heads? Yeah, some of those children of those men, 47 in total, are still alive and they're stuck in Syria. So are some of the partners of those men. There's 20 of them. I'm so scared. Oh my God. I don't know how much longer I can do this for. (laughs) They just found a woman's body in the toilet. She was all mutilated and cut up. I don't know what to do. That was Sarah Ahmed. She's one of the women who've been called the ISIS brides. That was a recording of her calling a relative. Yeah, it was um, pretty hard to hear and the conditions in those camps seem horrifying. The women have been in a refugee camp called Al Hall in northern Syria that holds people that are displaced by Islamic State. But over the last few weeks, they've been moved to another camp. And the families of those women and children, the families that are here in Australia, have been pleading with the Australian government to bring them home. Here's Kamal Debussy, whose daughter is there with his grandchildren. It's not something I wish upon anyone, not knowing where your daughter is, not knowing if she's alive or dead, actually not even not even having a goodbye, not, not even knowing exactly what had happened to her. 
So far, the Australian government has refused to bring these women and children home. The advice to me is that some of these women are as bad as any of the men that we've seen. That's Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton. And as you're about to hear, other Western countries have taken their ISIS brides and children home. So should we? Yeah, that is the question that we are asking today. Matt Tinkler is the Deputy CEO of Save the Children. That is an organisation that works with women and children in those refugee camps. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell us what the latest developments are in the camps? What we've seen happen in the last uh, couple of weeks is the Kurdish authorities who administer the camps and control that region of northeast Syria, they've moved the Australians from a camp called Al Hol to a camp called Al Raj. It's further to the northeast in Syria. It's a much smaller camp. There's only a couple of thousand people in there. So we understand that most of the Australian contingent have been moved to that camp uh, very recently. Why were they moved and how were they moved? El Hol is a really tough place to be. So it's overcrowded. It's very inaccessible for health services to get uh, adequate food and water and sanitation support in. Um, And the Kurdish administration have also been concerned that there are more radicalised elements within the camp. So, So women who still hold the the ISIS belief very strongly. So they've said publicly that they've moved the the Australian contingent and others for two main reasons. One, to alleviate the burden on numbers in the Al-Hol camp, and two, because they want to separate uh, some of the less radicalised people, they say, with the more radicalised people. And as far as positives go, they're still in a detention camp in the desert in northeast Syria in a war zone. So it's a, a marginal improvement, but it is better than where they were, we understand. One other positive element, though, is it's an easier staging point to extract them from the camps to the neighbouring countries. So Kurdish-controlled Iraq is a relatively peaceful and stable country. That's the way you would take them across the border and and allow them to be repatriated back to Australia. So hopefully that's made it slightly easier for authorities to do that too. So what are the conditions like? Because we just heard some audio that included a description of a head in a toilet. The conditions are horrible. Um, there's kids dying in these camps uh, every week. Um, it goes from the extremes of a desert summer, so kids dying from dehydration and exposure to heat, to the extremes of a desert winter and kids dying from hypothermia. They're also dying from things like malnutrition because they don't have uh, adequate uh, food and support going in and they're dying from treatable health conditions that uh, should be treated but they're not because the the right amount of health care and support isn't there. So it's truly one of the worst places in the world to be a child and at the moment there's 40 Aussie kids languishing in this environment. So what do you make of the Australian government's refusal to get them out? Well, it's about politics, really. So they've pointed to two barriers in the past. One is not willing to risk Australian personnel to extract them from the camps. But we know this isn't the case. Uh, Other countries like France and the UK in the last few days have managed to extract their citizens. The US authorities have offered their full support, the use of their military assets if necessary. So no Australian needs to be put in harm's way to extract them. The Kurdish administration will take these Aussie women and children to the border for the Australian government. The other barrier they've pointed to is a concern about the risk to Australians if these people come back home and they may be radicalised themselves. But the women have all said they will comply fully with law enforcement authorities. They'll sign up to what we call terrorism control orders, which basically puts them under house arrest, you know, monitoring of their every move, prevention of them associating with certain groups. So we don't think there's any real risk to Australians to get these people home. But there's a massive risk right now for those kids if they stay in those camps much longer, because we know 
their health and lives are at risk in that environment. Matt Tinkler from Save the Children. Let's get the legal perspective because there were laws introduced that allowed us to take away the citizenship of someone who joined ISIS. And we also have a range of terror laws like inciting terrorism, being associated with a terrorist organisation and providing support for a terrorist organisation. Yeah, and these crimes, they have hefty penalties. And these women could potentially be tried for these charges. Guy Goodwin-Gill is a professor of law from UNSW. Uh, He says that we should bring these women and children home and we should try them under those laws rather than leave them in Syria. But the point is that if they are delinquent, then they are Australian delinquents, not anyone else's delinquents, and and therefore they should be monitored here and de-radicalised if that's necessary. But um, no, I don't think that leaving them overseas is going to do any, anyone any good any time, particularly when you've got kids involved as well. Why do you think Australia should take a risk of any kind on bringing these women home? No, government is about taking risk. I mean, we, we take risk all the time and we should just, we have to think about the risk and about managing risk. And about that's why we should be be ready to take the women in this case because of the because of the risk. And we can a... manage that risk, and we should do, and we should take that into account. Why? Well, because that's one of the responsibilities of government. Government has responsibilities to its citizens, uh, and uh, and then there's responsibilities not only owed to the individual, they're also owed to other states. Um, there is a responsibility under the, if you like, under the, all the the laws, international laws on terrorism that we should take a stand on those who are alleged to be terrorists. And that means we should prosecute them where necessary. Uh, and uh, we should certainly readmit those who, uh, who otherwise would have nowhere else to go. That was Guy Goodwin-Gill, a professor of law at New South Wales Union, acting director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Yeah, and I think it will be interesting to see if the government changes its position Uh, Given that we've just heard the argument about the risk of getting these women and children out somehow being mitigated now by having them moved to another camp closer to the Iraqi border, potentially making their retrieval a little bit easier, wonder if that will change minds in the government. And we put that question to DFAT about whether the kids and their mothers moving to a different camp would change their position on getting them out. And at the time of recording this podcast, we hadn't heard back from them. Tomorrow on The Briefing, the death of an American woman that's been a focal point for the Black Lives Matter movement, Uh, and this death involves a $12 million payout, and also Beyonce and LeBron James speaking out about it. A Podcast One production.